Welcome to the Hedgemaker Broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. Mark 9, verse 30, just a couple of verses this evening. Verses 30, 31, and 32. This is the second prediction that the Lord made, in Mark anyway, of his death. But it also includes some intensive training for the disciples, and that's kind of what we want to look at here this evening. Mark 9, verse 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it, for he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. The introduction will be first, and that's pretty much verse 30. They departed thence and passed through Galilee. We have studied the life of Christ, and I keep forgetting to note where we are chronologically in the life of the Lord here, how many years and so forth, but we're moving to Jerusalem. That's his goal geographically, and he has already stayed away from some of these places that would more than not get him into trouble. Earlier we read about him going into Decapolis, the ten cities, and we studied in our geography uh, class in the Sunday school that those ten cities were Greek cities, so they're kind of away from the Roman uh, rule, and he's trying to avoid that somewhat. It says it here, he would not that any man should know it. So he's going back and passing through some of the Galilean area. When the Lord passes through these places, you kind of have to read between the lines a little bit, as you've seen with some of the other short verse commentaries that he moves and travels from place to place, but he preaches the gospel, he heals the sick, and does the various things. So I'm assuming that all is taking place here. And he's moving more toward ministering to his disciples and preparing them for the work that is before them. Not that he's avoiding the crowds uh, totally, because he's, he's not, but his early ministry, first year or so, was to minister to the crowds. Of course, he called the disciples. But now he's focusing more on the disciples. And that's what we find here. So that when you get to verse 31, and he taught his disciples and said unto them. Now what he's teaching them is about his impending death, burial, and resurrection. There's three things there. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed and he shall rise the third day. Verse 31 is the teaching. So if you're outlining Roman numeral 1, the teaching or the lesson. Jesus taught his disciples that he was to die and arise from the dead. What's interesting about this verse is some of the Greek grammar about it. 
the word for taught. He taught his disciples. In the Greek language, we have the one verbal form that's called an imperfect verb. It's kind of the opposite of the perfect verb. Perfect verb is completed action. Imperfect verb is an incompleted action. And the, incom- the imperfect in the Greek language is a continuative or durative action. So the idea would be that he taught his disciples and kept on teaching his disciples. So he's repeating this information. Repetition is good for the soul. It's a good tool of learning. He has already taught them about his resurrection, and now he is teaching them again. And they didn't uh, understand that. Okay, so Roman numeral number one, the teaching, the lesson. Letter A, I'm calling it four stages of betrayal. The text says the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. And when you think about that, and we're going to do a little bit of a study about this, delivered into the hands of men, we often ask, and I've heard it asked, who killed Jesus? And the answer is multiple, multiple answers. See, if you're lettering that, that would be A, this four stages of betrayal. One would be God delivered Christ up to be betrayed. Let's look at some references for that. Go to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. God delivered Christ up to be betrayed. And what we find from these, comparing the scripture with this, this is not something that happens in the life of Jesus where God is not in control. God is totally in control of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Acts chapter 2, when uh, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he explains this to his listeners. Acts 2 and verse 23, Peter says, well, verse 22 says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye also yourself also know, him, meaning Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God determined to do that. It wasn't something that was happenstance. It was part of the plan of God for Christ to go to the cross. So he's delivered up by God. God delivered Christ up to be betrayed into the hands of men. And then Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So that phrase, but delivered him up for us all. So the first, if you want to call them stages, that's the word I'm using. Uh, The first stage of betrayal is God delivered Christ to be betrayed. The second stage, and maybe stage isn't the best key word here to use, one number two, Christ delivered himself up to be crucified. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 4. This is really some theology behind the crucifixion of Christ and how Christ was crucified. Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 4. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil world according to the will of uh, of God and our Father. Gave himself for our sins. So, is it right to say that they took him? Yes. Other verses tell us that. So, number two, Christ delivered himself up to be crucified. Ephesians 5.2 
says, Walk in love as Christ also loved us and hath given himself for us an offering. Zeroing in on that phrase, gave himself for an offering. In that same chapter, Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wives. Good advice. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Okay, so he gave himself freely to be crucified. Let's read this one together. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14. Let's go to that passage of scripture. Titus 2 and verse number 14. We're talking about the second coming of the Lord here, looking for that blessed hope, verse 13, and the glorious appearing of our great God, verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. He gave himself. And then also 1 John 3.16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. So Christ, number two, Christ delivered himself up to be crucified. God delivered him to be betrayed. And number one, Christ delivered himself up to be crucified. And of course, as we work our way through the Gospels, we will learn that Judas betrayed him. Number three, Judas betrayed him. And that's referenced, of course, in all four of the Gospels. Let me just give you the one in Mark, Mark 14, 10. Jesus, of course, named him who would betray him. He said, one of you is going to betray him. The disciples didn't know. That's always been interesting to me. We know of Judas as a scoundrel. And it's like, well, couldn't you spot him? Couldn't you pick him out? But the twelve, the other eleven disciples did not know Judas was amongst them. They said to themselves, amongst themselves, well, who is it? And even when Jesus said something to the effect he that you know dips his bread in the in the sop with me or whatever, and Judas did that, and still the disciples didn't catch on. The betrayal by Judas would uh, identify Christ to the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and that's always also been interesting to me. Why didn't Judas simply say, "Get the fellow with long hair"? Because Jesus didn't have long hair; he looked like everybody else in that culture, and we have. The uh, culture of the day from the, we didn't have photographs, but the the uh, busts of uh, the men there with the short hair. Judas had to point him out. And then these chief priests and scribes and elders, of course, then took him and delivered him to the Gentiles or the Romans. So, you know, he's betrayed by Judas and, and by all of these others. And then number four, the crowd uh, took him. Go back to what Peter says on the day of Pentecost there in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter says, Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken. So he's here addressing the men of Israel, so the crowd is what I'm calling it. Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. You know, when you ask that question, who killed Jesus? Was it the Roman soldiers? Was it the Jewish uh, leaders? Was it Jewish people at large? Was it the entire world? The answer is you and I killed Jesus. Our sin put him on the cross. So anyway, that's the betrayal there. God is nothing, of course, taking God by surprise. God delivered Christ up to be betrayed. Christ delivered himself up to be crucified. Judas betrayed him, and the crowd took him. So Jesus says to his disciples, he taught his disciples, 
And, and my concept of this, this imperfect verb of teaching and teaching again, that he's explaining this and going into perhaps even more detail than what we have recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. Now, that's a pretty generic statement, the hands of men. Does he mean the Romans? Does he mean the Jews? Does he mean Judas? Does he mean whom? But God is in control of that because God delivered Christ up to be betrayed. Christ delivered himself up to be betrayed. And, of course, Judas betrayed him. The crowd then also took him. So the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. And then Jesus uh, continues that and says, And they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now, where are we in our outline? Letter B, capital letter B. We now have five reasons why Jesus taught this death, burial, and resurrection. Five reasons why Jesus repeated this, the fact of his death, over and over again. Mark is making this plain, I think, as well as I think the other Gospels, that Jesus taught. The verse I'm thinking of, I think it's in chapter 8, it says something to the effect, then Jesus began to teach his disciples. Okay, So we've already had him beginning to teach his disciples about this. And now he's repeating it again. He will do it you know, more times as we approach the cross, as we move toward Jerusalem. Why was Jesus repeating this information? Why was he teaching this? Number one, he was dying, he's teaching it because he was dying as a willing sacrifice. He wanted the disciples to understand that, that he was dying as a willing sacrifice. He wasn't just simply saying, hey, I'm predicting that uh, they're going to catch me, they're going to kill me, and of course, but I'm going to rise again. So there's a teaching here. He was teaching his disciples that he was dying as a willing sacrifice. While he was teaching, for instance, in John 10, I think this is the only place, I don't think he does it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he talks about the illustration, doctrine of the Good Shepherd. And he says in John 10, 10 11, I'm the Good Shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Well, if you just look at that as a, in the sense of an illustration, you say, well, the Lord's just like a, a shepherd. He's going to dedicate himself to the sheep. But it's a prediction of his death. The shepherd, the good shepherd, giveth his life for the sheep. In that same chapter, chapter 10 of John and verse 15, I guess we might as well turn there because all of these are in that passage here. John chapter 10, the parable of the Good Shepherd. And then look at verse number 15. John 10, 15. As the Father knoweth me, even so I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Another prediction of his death. And then verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. That's a prediction of the resurrection. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. It goes back to our other truth. The Lord is the one giving himself or delivering himself up to be crucified. He was dying as a willing sacrifice. 
Number two, a second reason why the Lord was repeating this teaching over and over again, because He was dying to redeem man. He was dying to redeem man. And of course, this is fitting in keeping with the will of the Lord as well. Paul is going to bring this out in a number of his writings. Romans 3, 24, 23, uh, 20, 24 and 25, you know verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24 says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins. That's redemption, forgiveness of sins, through the forbearance of God. Christ was dying to redeem mankind. I don't think the disciples understood these things yet. In fact, our text says that, Mark 9.32. They did not understand these, these teachings about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus was dying to redeem mankind. In the Galatians, Paul says, Galatians 3.13 Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. He's dying in order to redeem mankind. Christ had to die, shed his blood, and of course he had to die by the shedding of his blood, in order to make that a redemption price. Ephesians 1.7, In whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. So there's a number of passages that talk about His redemption. I have other references as well, but let's move on. Number three, a third reason why Jesus kept repeating this doctrine of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to His disciples. He wanted His disciples to understand that He was willingly dying to fulfill the purpose of God. God had a plan. Acts 2.23, we read that now twice. Here's the third time. Him being determined by the deter, uh, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This is in fulfillment of the plan of God. Disciples, you need to understand this. At one point when Jesus is explaining about this, his, his death and burial and resurrection, I believe it was Peter said, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. And even when they came to capture the Lord, Peter's the one that pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Like, as if to say, this isn't going to happen. But Jesus already predicted that it would happen. Kind of a paradox, I guess, in the life of Peter. And then Romans chapter 8 is a good chapter about the determinate counsel of God. Verse 32 there says, He that spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There is a purpose of God to be fulfilled. So he was willingly dying to fulfill the purpose of God. A fourth reason why Jesus kept repeating this teaching to his disciples would be to dispel the myth, I guess it's proper to call it a myth, dispel the myth that he was not going to die, that he could never die. The disciples, with some of the teaching that was going around regarding the Messiah, they had this idea that the Messiah was going to come and, of course, not die, but free them. So, to dispel the myth that uh, the Son of God could never die. 
And then the last reason would be to drill the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection into the hearts and minds of the disciples. To drill that into them. Repetition is good for the soul. They didn't catch it. I don't think they really caught it until after Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came upon them. And then Peter preaches that message, and he now explains this to those to whom he's preaching. But you understand it before that. Even the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, right after the resurrection of Christ, right, you know, I mean, they, they didn't know he had resurrected yet. They thought he was dead and gone. And the two disciples on the road to Emmaus did not understand about the resurrection. So Jesus is trying to drill this truth into the hearts and minds of his disciples so that they could better understand the truth and grasp it finally after the resurrection takes place. Now, the response. Verse 32. Roman numeral number 2. The response. Roman numeral 1 was the teaching. We gave you four stages of the betrayal, five reasons for the teaching. And now Roman numeral number 2, the response. Let's read the verse. Back to Mark 9.32. But they understood not that saying. Okay, it, that includes the, the four things. The deliverance into the hands of men, the killing of him, and that after he was killed he would rise again the third day. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. Alright, let's examine that here a little bit. The response of the disciples. Now, the disciples are rejecting that teaching. They didn't, they're not saying it. But so much to say as, no, that's not going to happen. Not that they're, you know, refuting the Lord. Probably what they're doing is say, okay, here's the Lord teaching this, and we haven't really any reason to doubt the Lord's teaching, so he's probably meaning this in some kind of a figurative way. Like when he talked about the temple, and how that the temple was, what, 40 years was it, in building? You know, and then he says, destroy this temple, when he was talking about his body, and it will be raised up in three days. Another reference to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They understood it regarding the temple. So they probably did this. The Bible doesn't tell us they did this, but they probably made some kind of a spiritualization of the death, resurre- death and resurrection of Christ. Let's think where they are. Go back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 3. The disciples were like the typical Jew of the day. They had been taught the Old Testament Scriptures. They were taught about a coming Messiah, that there would be a Messiah to come, and uh, that this Messiah would come to free them from oppression and suffering and uh, that sort of thing. They also were taught about the Messiah. They were also taught about His kingdom. In Acts 1 is now when you're going to restore your kingdom. So they were taught that the kingdom was at hand. When John the Baptist came preaching, what did he preach? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John was the Baptist was preaching it. Jesus taught it that the kingdom was near. At hand means near. So they were ready for this to be established. How could it be established if he, the king, died? Kind of takes us back to the morning's message, huh? 
How can I have a son, Abram said, when I'm childless? How can we have a kingdom when the king dies? They fail to see the various stages of the kingdom of God uh, and what all it entails. That, yes, the kingdom was there, but yet it's future and all that sort of thing that comes into the study of eschatology or the future events. They also were only with the Lord for however long it was. Very short ministry. The Lord packing much information into those three or four years. I don't know where we are. Two years, three years down the road. So that's only a short period of time. The disciples, as I understand it anyway, were with the Lord every day. That's the impression I get once they were called from being fishermen or whatever, that they followed the Lord every day. I don't know if I can say that the Lord preached and taught every day, but I think there was a lot of teaching and and preaching that the disciples heard. But yet, still a relatively short time. How long does it take you to grasp new truths? I know when I first heard, for instance, the, the first inkling I had about the matter of the Bible texts and versions, it took me a good five years to finally say, oh, I guess this is true. When I first heard it, I said, you're nuts, you're crazy. And so how long? This would be something brand new to the disciples. Their concept of a Messiah was not a crucified Messiah. One that was going to die and rise again from the dead. Uh, As great as the resurrection would be, that was just not a part of their thinking at all. So this is new to them. The Lord, however many months, perhaps some years that they're with him, it's still relatively a a short time, and they, they needed a complete reversal and to unlearn, how do you unlearn something? The beliefs that they had, you know, from children. And that takes some time. So they hadn't really sat at Jesus' feet long enough to catch it, and yet, on the other hand, they should have caught it, because Jesus made it plain. He wasn't hiding these things from them. There's principles that are being done here. The Lord is teaching them little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept, as Isaiah says. And he's trying to build upon the truth that they already know. So the concept would be that the disciples would probably spiritualize this teaching about the death, burial, and resurrection. They didn't really think that Jesus was talking about a literal, physical death and crucifixion. So when he was crucified... It's like, wow, we're really disappointed. More than disappointed. Almost to the point of despair. You look at those disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're thinking, hey, this we thought that the kingdom was going to come and now this has taken place. So this whole t- teaching about the truth of the death and resurrection was a puzzle to them. We get all excited when we first dump the puzzle pieces out and we find the edge pieces, right? You get all the edges made and then you're stuck. Where does this puzzle piece... That's the way these disciples... What in the world does this teaching about this death, burial, and resurrection have to do with anything? Where does this puzzle piece fit into the whole scope of what Jesus was all about? It was a great big puzzle to them. They didn't understand it. Here's some for instances. Maybe they thought, well, maybe what he's talking about is dying to self. You know, Jesus did teach that. If any man will follow me, let him take up his cross and, uh, you know, die to self-crucify himself. Maybe they spiritualized it that way. That's maybe what he meant. 
that he had to die to self. And maybe he had to die to self in order to be raised up to establish this kingdom. It's just some thoughts. I don't know what they really were thinking here. Then maybe he'll bring in the uh, kingdom to, to the nation of Israel. But really when it comes down to it, the disciples did not, just did not understand. And that's because simply the Lord opened your eyes little by little as you continue to study and as you ask him to do so. So there's a kind of a double application here. One, we have our human frailties and we're not going to perceive. Okay, the things of God are higher than our, God's ways are higher than our ways. So, so there's a point where we have a legitimate excuse for not understanding. But there's another point where we're, we're the dull of hearing people or we're the blind eyed people. And so we need to open our ears and open our eyes to perceive the truth. This is Dr. Lee Hennies, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached at church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is the preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org. And let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again. (laughs) 